Author Donald Whitney wrote a book called uh, 10 Questions to Diagnose Your Spiritual Health. I had a friend recommend this to me. I haven't read it yet, but uh, looking at the uh, the chapter headings, uh, each, each chapter is uh, a question to ask yourself. And uh, there are some really good questions. Some of them were, uh, do you thirst for God? Another one was, are you governed increasingly by God's word? Are you more loving? Are you more sensitive to God's presence? And when I looked over these questions, one that really jumped out to me uh, had to do with sin. And the, the question is this, do you still grieve over sin? And Whitney states, the closer you get to Jesus, the more you will hate sin. For nothing is more unchristlike than sin. Because Jesus hates sin, the more like him you grow, the more you will grow to hate sin. And the more you hate sin, the more you will grieve whenever you realize that you have embraced that which killed your Savior. Well, thankfully, if, if we've come to Jesus Christ, the, uh, the, the penalty for our sin has been paid on the cross. Um, you know, we, we have recognized the grievous nature of our sin, and, and we turn away from it and turn to Christ, and all things become new as, as we become new. But it doesn't take long for us to realize that we have a struggle within us, that even though Jesus has saved us from the penalty of sin, we still wrestle in our lives with the influence of sin. And we realize that, that we need him every day, every hour. Uh, one, one of the sins that we hear about in the Bible a lot is idolatry. Uh, the, the Bible talks quite a bit about idolatry. Uh, what is it? Uh, what is idolatry? You know, one of the most intriguing passages about idols is a description of how an idol is made. In Isaiah forty four twelve, it says, The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line, he marks it out with a pencil, he shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass, he shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house, he cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees in the forest and he plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it, then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself, he kindles a fire and bakes bread. And he also makes a god and worships it. And he makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over half of it he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself. And he says, aha, I am warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into, an idol, into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it and prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my god. What's so? What's so wrong with idolatry? You know, it, it's particularly egregious to God, and why is that? It's, it's because it causes people to turn away from God and to worship and, and put their trust in something or or someone who, who takes the place of God. And idolatry was one of the major sins that caused God to finally come to the end of His patience with His people and allow his, his people to be taken into exile and in, into Babylonia. And 
we, we see time and time again in, in the Old Testament how, how the people, God's people, would, would become like the, the people around them, the nations that, that worshipped false gods. Now in Ezra chapter 9, we, we see the beginnings of a crisis of, of sin among the people of Israel. Many of the people of Israel had begun to embrace the idolatrous culture around them by intermarrying with the people of the lands. Well, let's let's read together uh, in the ninth chapter of Ezra. Read with me. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the land with their abominations. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites and the Moabites, the Egyptians and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the people of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the the chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and, and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel became, because of the faithfulness, excuse me, because of the faithfulness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garments and my cloak torn, and I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, Oh my God. I am ashamed, and I blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. For our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, oh, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat of the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall, shall we break your commandments again 
and intermarry with the people who practice these abominations? Would, would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant, nor any to escape? O oh Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped and is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. Well, the question we, we need to ask is, how do we react to our sin? We, we can often take, a, a, take on a cavalier attitude about our own sin. You know, we're, we're, we're pretty quick to recognize sin in somebody else, but uh, gloss over the same sin in ourselves. You know, we can so easily convince ourselves that our own sin is no big deal. So, how should we view our own sin? Well, in this, in this chapter, I think we can see three things. We can see that, uh, that the godly reaction to, to sin, first is to uh, recognize it from God's word, to, uh, to mourn over it, to grieve for it, and then to confess it without making excuses uh, to, to a, a merciful God. Well, we recognize sin from the scripture. How do we know when we're slipping away from God's will? How do we know when we're sinning? You know, I think a mistake we can make in this particular chapter is misunderstanding what the real issue is. You know, here's the immediate problem. The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves out from the people of the lands with their abominations. Now, there have been people who've taken this text and, and used it for a basis for uh, racial bigotry, and you have seen it as a prohibition of, of, against mixed-race marriage. You know, they, they've completely missed the point. There have been others who, who have believed this also and have condemned the Bible, and, and they've missed the point also. You know, this is not an issue of, of race. It's an issue of ceremonial and uh, religious uncleanness. As, as God had set it up for his people. You know, it's not because the people of the land are a certain color, but because these other nations, he lists them out, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. We're going to entice them away from the, from the true God and uh, lure them into idolatry. You know, the prohibitions on marriage are, are religiously based, not racially based. Uh, you know, we, 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 can, we can see that in Jesus' own lineage, you know, in, in um, the New Testament, the genealogies of our, our Lord. Uh, you know, there, there are two women in the genealogy who were not Jews. You know, the... The, uh, the, the issue about intermarriage wasn't a matter of human opinion. It was a matter of obedience to God's commands. And we can see more clearly if we look at what the New Testament says about who we should and shouldn't marry. You know, there, there's two things, really. You know, first of all, we should marry a person of the opposite sex. Second, we should marry a, a believer. You know, Paul in 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. 
And I've, I've seen, well, we've all seen what a problem this can be for a believer to marry an unbeliever. What happens when you do that? You know, first, there's no unity in the marriage, in, in the most important thing of a marriage, that is unity in Christ. You know, our marriages need to be uh, based on Christ, centered around Christ. Second, there's a there's a compromise that takes place where the believing spouse takes on the ideas and the practices of the unbelieving spouse. I have a niece who who married a young man who's a Mormon. Now, she's a Mormon. Their children are going to be Mormons. They're going to grow up believing in in false gods. These marriages with people of other nations that worshipped false gods were were forbidden in the law of Moses, uh, Deuteronomy 7, 3 through 6. Speaking of the people who were in the land that they were going to possess, God says this, he says, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons, or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. This this word abominations. My my Hebrew lexicon uh, talks about how this word indicates all sins which have a, a polluting effect. You know, Deuteronomy 12, 30-31 gives us an idea of what these abominations are, some examples. It says, Take care that you not be ensnared to follow them after they've been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, hmm, How did these nations serve their gods, that I may do the same? You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way for every abominable thing that the Lord hates they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. And Ezra, remember, he, he was a scribe who, uh, remember in chapter 7, uh, it said that God's good hand was on him. He was a scribe who studied and knew the scripture. He he lived by the scripture. He he applied it to his life and, and he taught the scriptures. When it was brought to his attention that many of the people, including many priests and leaders, were, were violating God's commandments, he didn't react by saying, Oh, you know, there's two sides to every story. I'm sure these people have their reasons for what they're doing. Uh no. He recognized that God's commandments had been violated. He he knew the scripture, and that's that's something that we really need to do. How do we know sin? If 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 we're left to ourselves, we probably think that well, everything we ever do is okay. You know, maybe we have little indiscretions or maybe challenges or slip ups, but. Uh, you know, the, the thing is, we're we're very adept at, at excusing our own wrongs. Uh, thankfully, God has given us good instruction and, and clear instruction in his word. I, I love Psalm 119, which is a psalm about God's word. This great psalm, verses 9 and 11, it says, How can a young man keep his ways pure? 
by guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up the word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Uh, oh, we, we need to store up the word. We need to hide it in our, our hearts. Uh, verses 104 and 105 of, of the same psalm. Through your precepts I get understanding. Therefore I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. God's word, the, the Bible, gives us everything we need to know about how to live a life that is pleasing to God and how to identify when we're sinning against him. But here we are, we're, we're so prone to play fast and loose with God's commandments. You know, what was, what was the problem with intermarriage? And uh, we cannot look at this through a 21st century lens. The problem was not that the people would pollute their gene pool with racial impurities. No, the problem was the people's practices. The problem was the worship of, of false gods. The problem was idolatry. Uh, in Joshua, God commanded the Israelites, Joshua 23, 6 through 8, Therefore be very strong to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord, your God, just as you have done this day. So we recognize our, our sin from Scripture. Just, again, highlighting the importance of, of knowing God's Word. Well, the next appropriate response is to mourn over our sin. And this is how Ezra responded. In his own words, Ezra 9, 3-5, As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the Lord God of Israel because of the faithfulness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. It's, it's interesting how Ezra responds here. He, you know, he was not personally guilty. He was not one of those who had uh, compromised by marrying somebody from the, the people around them, but he associates with the people. He he takes on the guilt of the people. Think how think how many of us would respond. You know, we, we might blame the guilty ones and become very harsh with them and, and judgmental. But Ezra grieved. And his his grieving was personal. He he took this personally. He mourned and fasted by by tearing his cloak and tearing his hair and, and beard. Uh, it's quite a picture, isn't it? But it's a, it's, it's a picture of deep lament, deep grieving and mourning over the sin. Ezra said he was appalled. This, this word translated appalled in the Hebrew means to be put to shame, to, to be inwardly shattered, uh, to be numbed. Do we grieve over our sin like this? Do we do we realize the uh, the gravity of our disobedience towards God? Do we do we recognize the uh, the harm and the the destruction that that takes place when we sin? 
Or do we downplay our sin and make excuses? Maybe, or, or do we shift blame to others? Ezra didn't do this. Ezra's grief was one of personal devastation. He was deeply crushed in, in his soul. Ezra mentions the, the people who trembled at the words of the, of the God of Israel. And uh, God says in Isaiah 60, 6, 2, listen to this. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Do we grieve over sin? Do we tremble at God's word? Or have we seen sin so much and been exposed to it so deeply that, that we're desensitized to it? We really need to not only know God's word, but rely on the Holy Spirit to, to bring reconciliation, to, to bring conviction to our hearts and, and consciences towards sin. So we recognize our sin from, from Scripture. We, we realize the grievousness of it. What, what's the next step? Well, the next step is to confess our sin. To confess our sin. Not giving excuse, but to confess our sin uh, to, to a merciful God. Verse 5, he said, At the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting, with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blushed to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. You know, again, notice notice how Ezra takes on the, the guilt of, of the people. He associates with it personally. He falls to his knees in submission to God, and, and he lifts his hands. He says, I'm ashamed. Our iniquities, our guilt. He says, we are guilty. We have sinned against you. No excuses. We have sinned. Oh, and by the way, um, this, this is kind of interesting. In, the, uh, in three of the post-exilic books, chapter 9 contains this confession, we have sinned. Uh, in, in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, we've got Daniel, this, this man praying for the end of captivity, and he confesses, we have sinned. That's kind of interesting because Daniel is one of the uh, unblemished uh, characters in our Bible. He he identifies with the people, though, we have sinned, and he's identifying with the covenant, saying, you know, you promised to bring about the end of captivity, well, that's in Daniel chapter 9. The action taken is, is repentance under the covenant to, to bring about God's ending of the uh, captivity of his people. In Nehemiah chapter 9, we're, we're going to encounter Levites that, that will pray to renew the covenant. And they'll pray this same thing, make, confessing the same thing. We have sinned. They're, they're praying for repentance under the covenant. And... Here, chapter 9 of Ezra, we've got Ezra saying, we have sinned, we have sinned. And the issue is is here dealing with the sin of intermarriage with the people of the land, and he, he prays for repentance under the covenant as well. Remember the story about when Moses received the law on Mount Sinai, and, and when he came back, he discovered that the people 
led by his own brother Aaron, had, had crafted this idol, a golden calf, and they were worshiping it. They were sacrificing to it. How did how did Aaron respond? Uh, Exodus thirty two twenty one through twenty four. Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you brought on such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Well, let let not your anger, my Lord, burn hot. You know the people, how they're set on evil. And they said to me, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. And so they gave it to me. I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. <laughs> Aaron totally shirks his own responsibility. He he blames the people. He he blames the the gold. He blames the calf that he made. Um, but look at Ezra here. He he does the exact opposite. He acknowledges the sin. He, he makes no excuses. He acknowledges what God has said. He acknowledges that God has had great mercy on his people, uh, not, not giving them nearly what they deserve for their, their rebellion. He recognizes that God is a God of mercy. He, he looks kindly at those who honestly recognize their own fault, acknowledge their sin, and, and come to him for forgiveness. Uh, Psalm 145.8 says this about the Lord. He's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. How do, how do we pray when others have sinned? I, I think Ezra's example here gives us some good principles to follow. First, we need to check our own attitude. Are, are we being self-righteous and harshly critical of, of others? Or is ours an attitude of love, one that, that seeks to restore others? Second, we need to ask ourselves, what, what is my part in, in this sin? We, we need to acknowledge our own responsibility, our own culpability for, for sin. We, and we need to ask the Holy Spirit to, to reveal our blind spots. Psalm 139.23 through 24 has this great prayer this this is one we we need to pray every day search me O god and know my heart try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting oh thankfully god is merciful he's he's slow to anger and willing to forgive our sin when when we confess I feel this might be a little incomplete because uh, chapter 10 takes up where chapter 9 leaves off and, and addresses the next step, which, which is repentance. But we'll, we'll get to that next week. Well, as we, as we close, you know, when we sin, we, we disobey God. We, we go our own way. We turn our backs on our Lord. And David said, your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. God's word gives us everything we need to live the Christian life. Paul tells Timothy, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. This is what we all need. 
How do we recognize sin? By, by God's word. Sin grieves God. Do we experience sorrow over our own sin? Do we grieve as Ezra did? Do we acknowledge the harm that is caused? Our, our sin should, should deeply wound us when we realize its seriousness. And once we've recognized our sin and, and grieved over it, we need to confess our sin. No excuses. No self-justification. We need to rely on our merciful God to, to forgive us. If we confess our sin, John says in 1 John, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to, con- and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness.